Welcome to episode 39 of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I'm your host, Jason Dubray, and um, I'm pleased to be talking to you today about five more movies in my 31 Days of Horror Challenge for uh, 2021. This will be uh, volume two, and this episode is going to cover five movies over three days in October and three themes that are connected to uh, Scott Lehman's 31 Days of Horror Challenge. First of all, the three themes that uh, we're looking at are a day to look at horror icons. So I had two movie entries for the horror icons. And then we have one which is Makeup Slash Effects by Chris Wallace. It was a very prolific effects man and uh, makeup artist. So we'll look at one movie from that day. And then we're today looking at Netflix horror, and I watched uh, two movies on Netflix that day. So I'm looking forward to getting into this. If uh, you didn't listen to Volume 1, it is just me for this episode. I don't have a guest. So as far as totaling up the points, I've created three categories for the 31 Days of Horror Challenge. I'm looking at movies based on their acting, the story, and the scariness. And the five movies I'm going to be looking at on this show, a horror classic going back to 1932, White Zombie, starring the late, great Bella Lugosi. I'll talk a little bit more about him after a while. Then, taking a look at Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, a movie that came out in 2006, uh, featuring some small roles by more modern horror icons like Kane Hodder has a bit of a, a cameo and the other legend is Robert England of course the man who made Freddy Krueger popular uh, also appears in the film. Third movie we're going to look at as far as the makeup effects for Deep Star 6. Deep Star 6 is a science fiction horror movie uh, going back to 1989. It's directed by Sean S. Cunningham, who uh, was the first director of the Friday the 13th series. Then, as far as looking at Netflix, I looked at a brand new 2021 film called No One Gets Out Alive. And we're going to wrap up with a Zack Snyder zombie film, Army of the Dead. Once again, there may be some spoilers for this episode. Uh, I am kind of keeping the reviews kind of short. And I hope you enjoy this episode, and please continue to let people know about the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, and uh, I look forward to continuing to produce these episodes going forward. For now, let's take a look at five very different horror movies. From Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all. Bela Lugosi as Murder Legendre. I see death. Master of the Undead Damned. The sinister power behind the white zombie. Zombies? Yes. They are my servants. This soul killer takes men from their graves to be his slaves. His instruments of terror, and now this fiend plots to possess a woman. Only a pink boy, a silver moth, in a glass of wine, or perhaps a flower. Keep it, monsieur. Keep it. You may change your mind. Not dead. Are you mad? I saw her die. The doctor signed the certificate. I saw them bury her. Captive in the borderland between life and death. Her brain drained of the life spark. The white zombie obeys the unholy commands of her demon master. 
As mindless creatures carry out his cursed will, terror explodes in horror and heartquake. Zombie! Never eyes so evil, never powers so potent, never magic so black, Bela Dracula Lugosi, as the master of the white zombie. I have absolutely no problem looking at older movies. In fact, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, in past episodes, I've uh, favorably reviewed some uh, Charlie Chaplin silent films, as well as some uh, Alfred Hitchcock films. And looking at White Zombie, I had never seen it before, but I had heard that it was a horror classic. Uh, it may be the first zombie film. And, of course, we are starting with the zombie film and we're ending with the zombie film. Uh, these are not kind of the uh, George A. Romero types of zombies, though, that we're necessarily looking at. We're, we're, we're looking at uh, a little bit more of the zombies that would be inside, sort of like connected to Wes Craven's The Serpent and the Rainbow. This movie stars Bella Lugosi, and really, Bella Lugosi was the reason that I decided to watch this film. I've talked about on the show... Ed Wood, I've also reviewed Plan 9 from Outer Space. And I think, unfortunately, I mean, he's had a bit of a resurgence because of the resurgence of the Universal Monster movies and, of course, uh, Dracula. And he appeared in, in several other Universal Monster movies. But really, the end of his career was quite a sad state of affairs. And he was ultimately washed up and considered quite a bad actor. I think within his wheelhouse, Bela Lugosi was very good at what he did. He certainly was uh, a terrific type of Dracula figure, which I think really kind of set up the uh, archetype for Dracula for many years to come after his his years playing that. Watching White Zombie, I guess uh, a bit of a criticism is I, I think he is good because he's such an interesting screen presence. And there was something about his eyes and his hands and his physicality that you can't take your eyes off of him in the film. And he is so good. And he kind of swallows up everybody else in the film because of how good he is. Yet, and he, I'm sure he would have hated to hear this, but uh, I still couldn't get his Dracula out of my mind. It felt like the character he's playing was a version of his Dracula character. And uh, I'm not sure that that necessarily works that well for White Zombie. So uh, White Zombie is essentially about a young couple, uh, Madeline and Neil, who are coaxed by their acquaintance, Monsieur Beaumont, to get married on his Haitian plantation. Beaumont's motives are purely selfish, as he makes every attempt to convince the beautiful young girl to run away with him, literally as they're walking down the aisle, by the way. For help, Beaumont turns to the devious Legionnaire, played by Bela Lugosi, a man who runs his mill by mind-controlling people he has turned into zombies. After Beaumont uses Legionnaire's zombie potion, uh, which is kind of an interesting idea, on Madeline, he is dissatisfied with her emotional, emotionless being, because she's, she's essentially become a zombie, and he wants her to be changed back. Legionnaire has no intention of doing this, and he drugs Beaumont as well in an attempt to add uh, another zombie to his collection and basically have another slave. And in the meantime, the grieving widower Neil is convinced by a local priest that Madeline may still be alive, and he seeks her out. And, of course, this involves a castle where Legendaire le lives, which looks a lot like Dracula's castle. I, I, I don't know. I feel like there's an interesting story in White Zombie, but this is it's not carried out that well. And again, it's very much in you know 1930s, it makes sense. The acting is all over the place. Uh, it's very big. It really centers around a melodramatic love story. And at no point do I really feel any sort of 
danger for the characters. I don't really notice any horror. I kind of hope that the movie doesn't turn out the way that I was predicting it would, but it definitely did. So I was kind of left a little bit bored with White Zombie, and it's not because it's black and white, and it's not because it's an older film. I, I just don't think it's a very well-executed horror movie. I know it has its influence and it has its fans, and there will be some people who enjoy it as far as you know those who enjoy uh, gothic cinema, and I happen to be one of those people who in, enjoys that as well when it's well-executed. But unfortunately, I, I, I don't think that White Zombie is that well executed. A lot of the actors are uh, just pretty much forgettable. Um, Madeline is paid, played by uh, Madge Bellamy. Neil is played by John Heron. And uh, Charles Beaumont is played by Robert Frazier. You know, I mean, the climax of the movie, I think, would have been quite interesting if if I was living in that time. But it plays out in a very very uh, predictable way i mean there are there is kind of this interesting idea of the zombies being mindless and not being aware of the danger that they're in and being controlled by this man is kind of a unique idea as opposed to kind of the idea of the un undead uh zombies i think in this case it's a potion as opposed to actually dying and coming back from the dead due to some sort of a virus. I think on the whole, I, I probably prefer the uh, George A. Romero type of a zombie to white zombie. But that said, I think if you're interested in the history of kind of the an early zombie film, if you're interested in watching a Bela Lugosi movie, which isn't Dracula and isn't kind of in his uh, Ed Wood B movie, uh, time frame towards the end of his career. I, I wouldn't dissuade people from checking it out. I just, I think it was probably built up pretty uh, big in my mind. And as a result, it was a little bit of a letdown, unfortunately. So acting wise, I'm giving five and uh, five of those points, maybe four and a half are for Lugosi himself. Still a, a great screen presence. The story, again, very thin. Man who wants a girl who getting married to somebody else. Goes to somebody evil to do this, is successful in that, isn't happy, and then when uh, Legionnaire is put back against the wall, he's going to come out attacking uh, with his, basically his uh, servants who are zombies. So uh, not much of a story there. Scariness, so story I gave five as well. Scariness, not scared at all. I gave it a two. Uh, I guess the black and white photography and some of the atmosphere works well for gothic cinema but on the whole not necessarily um, my thing the boy murdered silas buried his body in the field and dragged molly from the house hanging her in the farm's apple orchard cardio I have to do. It's ridiculous. There's that whole thing of making it look like you're walking and everybody else is running their asses off. Everybody thinks we just wake up one morning and start obsessing about a girl and start stalking her, killing everybody that gets in the way. That does seem to happen a lot with you guys. <laughs> that boy, he's going to be the best yet. There are 11 exits from the first floor. Ah! Another eight or nine that might be manageable from the second floor. Ah! <laughs> All the obvious weapons, I've sabotaged. Why are you doing We're this? We're not gonna have this conversation. Oh, why? What, you Get in the van. You have no idea who you're dealing with. So how will this play out? How will this work? You won't like what you see. I promise you that. I'm so happy. Make sure you're getting this. Go! Oh, oh start now. Ah! Hope you got film in those cameras, boys. No! No! 
cannot stand here and let this happen. Don't you get it? We're in this now. We're part of his equation. We're right where he wants us. All of us. You have to tell me. What happens to me? So for something completely different, but the same theme is looking at celebrating horror icons. Went for a uh, 2006 movie, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. This is uh, quite an interesting film. Very uh, original, I would say. Um, it's uh, written by Scott Glosterman and David J. Steve. And Scott Glosterman is the director. We have kind of the... The mockumentary force perspective, which is handled really, really well. I know this is not everybody's thing, but I quite like this subgenre. But kind of a, a nice take on it as far as how it mixes that as well as a rather cinematic looking uh, set of cinematic looking sequences about the movie that's going on. So, story is the next great psycho horror slasher is been given a documentary through exclusive access to his life as he plans his reign of terror over the sleepy town of Glen Echo. And so uh, the the killer is Leslie Vernon. There's mythology around Leslie Vernon um, about about the uh, the death of uh, his mother, and then every year uh, in the same property, these teenagers come and party in this house, which is uh, kind of haunted, and Leslie Vernon appears, and he uh, kills a bunch of teenagers. Yet they still go back and uh, for the party every year. And really, it's about Leslie trying to become a full-blown horror movie legend like Jason and Freddy and Michael Myers, and they're mentioned, and they are, you know, uh, very much. Uh, I at the the backdrop of this uh, documentary, Angela Gothals plays Taylor Gentry, who is an ambitious documentarian who is going around with Leslie Vernon, played by Nathan Bissell, and finding out how he plans to trap and then kill all of these kids. And he thinks he can find his final girl, the one who will survive to the end of the night and will kill him. And that will then give him the status of a Jason. And he thinks, again, Leslie has thought, thinks he has found his final girl, who is this small town waitress. Her name is Kelly and is played by Kate Miner. And he thinks that Kelly is this virginal kind of booky, nerdy teen girl who will be the one who survives and doesn't give in to the temptation of sex and drugs and drinking uh, on that night and will be able to uh, come after him and have an ultimate battle in this, this key space. And so as we're watching this plan out in kind of that documentary format, we start to see scenes act out acted out and, and, and presented in cinematic vision of the story that's happening of this night where Leslie Vernon is the uh, horror movie monster. Really kind of nice roles in here. Uh, Scott Wilson, who people recognize from many different movies, but certainly he was in The Walking Dead. He plays a, a former killer, and him and his wife act as a mentor uh, to Leslie Vernon and almost a bit of a father figure, which is kind of interesting. And they go and, you know, talk out their strategy. And that we also have the uh, Freddy Krueger himself, Robert England, as I mentioned in the introduction. He plays Doc Halloran, who is somebody who's who's figuring out what Leslie is doing and is trying to capture him and kill him. If you can think of Loomis from uh, Halloween, it's it's that type of a figure that he plays. So it's kind of cool and a bit meta. The whole movie is very meta. Freddy Krueger is mentioned as like the Leslie wants to be like Freddy Krueger, that kind of a legend. And here we have Freddy Krueger himself playing a role where he's trying to kill the the horror movie monster. Keen Hodder has uh, a very, very, to blink and miss it, cameo 
they have a, a sequence where they're filming the documentary on Elm Street. And we look in a window and one of the neighbors uh, looking in is uh, Kane Hodder just looking out and not appreciating being filmed. And he, of course, played Jason and, and maybe the most famous person playing Jason Voorhees. So we have Freddie and we have Jason uh, in this movie, the actors who played played them. So it's a really cool independent in many ways movie that obviously the horror community was on board with participating in and i found it kind of uh, refreshing after white zombie because it was something that was a little bit unique it covers and it actually goes beyond scream certainly talked about the rules of slasher movies but goes even into even more detail about it but there's a lovely, lovely plot twist towards the end of the movie that I'm not going to ruin for people because I would like them to check this out uh, that really kind of elevated the story even more from being kind of a one of a series of meta-horror movies that are kind of creative ideas like Cabin in the Woods, like the Scream franchise. But there's, there's something that's just really kind of special about it. So I would recommend it. Uh, again, I think the, the acting, and the acting is probably appropriately sometimes a bit realistic, sometimes quite over the top. The archetypes uh, who are meant to be real people in the documentary act very much like the archetypes if it was just a straight-up slasher movie. So uh, the acting kind of varies from places to places, place to place, but overall uh, I would give it an 8. I, I actually think uh, I like Angela Gothal's performance as Taylor Gentry, the documentarian, probably uh, the best of, of anybody in the film. She goes on the the biggest journey from where she is at the beginning, uh, being this ambitious journalist into realizing uh, what she has created by uh, filming this documentary. As far as story, again, it really impressed me. I am spreading the, the points out a little bit more. So it is 11 for story. Scariness, I, I do think it is a few legitimate jumps. And and, and I actually find the, document, the documentary sections creepier because it's such a straight-faced look at... Uh, a, a a psychopath and a, a horrible character, but you just kind of see the joy that he gets in planning this and and hoping that this is the night where he gets to meet his his final girl. And uh, I I think there's something really really kind of creepy and freaky about that. So I I gave 13 points for scariness. For Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. This is an interesting film uh, with Scott Glosserman uh, as the writer-director. I, I am now very much interested in, in looking at some more um, films by him. I, I would check out another film that he makes. And this is a, a really, really kind of cool, unique horror movie that is added a little bit of something different into my 31 Days of Horror experience. Below the surface of the sea, far, far below, in impenetrable darkness, at unimaginable pressure, no form of life we know could possibly exist. Here, there is only silence, and the crew of Deep Star Six. Six months at the bottom of the ocean. It's more than I'm bargaining for. They are explorers. Let's bring it aboard and get the hell out of here. What's the matter? You gonna let a few ugly fish scare you? They are invaders. Okay, boys and girls, don't try this at home. In a world which no human being has ever entered. Sonar contact. Down here? I'd like to go out and take a look. Contact closing. 300 meters. Now, they are about to make a startling discovery. Not all aliens come from space. Star Six. We're gonna have to go back down there. Cut they kill half our crew. Damn it, there's something in the <laughs> Save your last breath to scream. 
from the creator of Friday the 13th, Deep Star 6. To, to be honest, I, I really did not know a whole lot about Chris Wallace, but I, again, I'm following the themes for each day, but very much uh, connected to a lot of very famous films, particularly the 1980s uh, Fly franchise. He worked on The Fly. He also worked on The Fly Part 2. Looking at, at his makeup credits, I think Deep Star 6 was one of the more prominent films uh, that he did, and I was very interested in seeing this film. You really notice, like, with Sean S. Cunningham, uh, and, I mean, the Friday the 13th, there's all kinds of stories about the directors along the way, him and maybe Steve Miner, and uh, these people just not necessarily getting along uh, that much, but still being very proud of the first movie that they made, even though they really kind of borrowed and stole from other horror films before it. I suppose an argument could be made that Deep Star 6 does heavily borrow from several other kind of science fiction horror movies. Seems, you know, pretty evident that Alien was uh, kind of at the back of my mind while I was watching this. Another movie which, uh, again, there would be no evidence that that he would have uh, borrowed from or stolen from was The Abyss, because The Abyss, James Cameron's movie, came out the exact same year as Deep Star 6. But I have to say that Deep Star 6 is a thoroughly entertaining movie. I guess I'm not terribly surprised by what goes on. I could, I could kind of predict on the whole what was going to happen from uh, moment to moment. But I didn't really care. It was very comforting to watch just a, a just a well-executed uh, science fiction horror movie. I could see how much Cunningham had improved as a filmmaker from 1980s Friday the 13th to Deep Star 6. Deep Star 6, while it will never have the reputation or the legacy that Friday the 13th has, it is technically a much better made film. So essentially, it's about a team of uh, Navy personnel stationed at a temporary base at the bottom of the ocean, and they're tasked with setting up nuclear missiles. And as they are setting up the nuclear missiles, they discover a huge underwater cavern, which houses a giant prehistoric creature. And that creature turns out to be uh, essentially a predator. And I use that word intentionally because I think there are elements of predator. There are elements of aliens as well as alien. But it is such an entertaining movie. Very, very likable cast with uh, kind of a central role. Well, not really central role, but a, a wonderful supporting role by the late Miguel Ferrer. As Schneider, he is just a thoroughly antisocial, unlikable character. And uh, I think in another actor's hands, he would be so unlikable that we would be cheering for this guy to, to get killed by this creature. But we kind of, you know, your understanding, he brings some layers to it where he's just been stuck for uh, all this time underwater, he wants to get home and he wants to find any means necessary to get home. But it seems like every decision that he makes is the wrong decision. Ultimately, they get into a bit of a survival situation and uh, he's not always that interested in working together with the rest of the team to try to defeat this, this creature. The other kind of couple other familiar faces we have Nia Peoples in there playing Scarpelli, and Matt McCoy plays Richardson. And uh, McCoy, you know, there's a bit of a love story. There's a couple love stories among the crew. And he's just sort of this kind of likable but kind of goofy guy. We spend quite a bit of time, as is was the nature of 1970s and 80s science fiction horror movies, getting to know the characters so that when spoilers you know a lot of them die and when they die it's it, it hurts a bit I, I think the the two characters who get the most screen time greg evigan uh plays mcbride and nancy everhart plays joyce collins they their love story is kind of at the center of this uh because mcbride is not necessarily willing to commit to marriage or anything but to up the stakes of the story, soon find out that Joyce is in fact pregnant. And so because she's pregnant, 
Now, there's an even greater reason to fight and try to survive so that they can get back up to the surface and start their life together. So the kills are brutal, as you would expect. One of the more memorable ones is uh, Laidlaw, who is the captain of this uh, this fleet played by uh, Turen uh, Black. His uh, death fairly early in the film is is just as brutal as anything that you would see in a horror movie. And that's where I saw, okay, yeah, this is the director of Friday the 13th when that happened. But uh, I like the buildup. I like that he's, you know, given uh, some character beats, you know, even though he doesn't have a whole lot of screen time. We also have uh, Marius Weathers, Van Gelder, very good character actor. He would be playing a lot of uh, kind of Russian characters in the 1980s. I enjoyed his presence in the film too, even though he's not in it very long. So a likable cast, very well directed. Uh, the special effects and those makeup effects, of course, are top-notch. Probably award-worthy, which is not a surprise on a, a day when we're celebrating effects and makeup in the horror genre. So Deep Star 6, I just think I'm going to revisit it several times because I just had such a good time with this movie. It's entertaining from start to finish. Yeah, certainly it's not the most original film you're going to see, but it's interesting that we remember The Abyss but we don't really remember Deep Star 6 as much. Uh, and I just think uh, more people need to check that one out. So acting-wise, I thought the acting, even though, you know, you could spot the the characters. Here's the Ripley type of character. You know, here here's kind of the John Hurt character from Alien. Here's, here's the... The killer type of character, like uh, like the Jesse Ventura character from Predator, like that sort of thing. You could spot these uh, characters, you could spot same sort of couple dynamic as Ed Harris and uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio in The Abyss, as far as the central couple here in uh, Deep Star 6. But I think all of the actors give it their all, and um, they don't overplay their hand. And I, I felt like the performances were grounded, even though it, it is in this uh, science fiction horror film, which is essentially a, a very well-executed creature feature as well. So 13 for acting. Story, I've, I've seen this before, and again, I'm spreading the points out a little bit more. Uh, it's a likable story, but I think it does borrow from a lot of different places, but it does it really well. 11 for story. Scariness. It has some gore and some big kills, which were quite impressive and a lot of difficult situations for the characters to in, in battling this creature. But again, not overall that scary for me. I'm giving it a 10. So uh, overall, I big recommend for Deep Star 6. People should check it out. I will likely be reviewing this again in uh, a future episode of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Rooms just over here. Ladies only, no smoking, no pets. Amamba, are you guys staying here? For now. Stop out there. Yeah. So much better in here. I know this house is kind of weird. Basement's private. You hear it too? What have you seen? There's something wrong with this place. Even when I'm awake, I see it. I've seen it there. Hello? This house is kind of weird. Please don't try to leave. It'll make it worse. Where 
to Netflix Horror. Netflix has certainly become a very prominent studio. I, I know collectors of films have some issues with Netflix as far as not making some of their movies uh, available to buy. But I was looking for some, scrolling through for some some different stuff. Uh, so I chose one horror movie that I, I hadn't heard a whole lot about. And then another one, which is a more prominent release from this year, but uh, both 2021 movies. First one is No One Gets Out Alive. No One Gets Out Alive is uh, directed by Santiago Mangini. Santiago Mangini has done visual effects and is a producer as well. And as far as being a director, has mostly done short films. This is kind of the first feature-length film. And I think it's uh, an, an impressive debut as far as a feature film goes. And it takes kind of... Uh, Maybe some familiar horror beats, but uh, kind of changes the context a little bit in an impressive way. We're following an immigrant named Amber, played by uh, Christina Rodlow, who uh, is actually an illegal immigrant and has uh, snuck into the United States. And she's made her way to uh, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, just because she knows that she has an uncle who lives there. And she's essentially trying to earn enough money in a, a sweatshop to uh, be able to a, uh, afford rent on a place and B, to uh, get some forged documents to prove her citizenship. And then if she's able to do that, uh, her uncle would be able to provide her with a more stable job. She has told her uncle that she was actually born in the state of Texas and that she is in fact an American citizen, which is not true. She ends up in a rooming house, a rather giant house, which uh, proves to be absolutely the wrong place to end up. Appears that there's only one other person who's living in this place as well as the landlord, but she soon discovers that there appear to be other folks there. And whether they are uh, ghosts or not, is kind of part of the journey of the story and that there is uh there are in fact uh three other people that are living in this house and she finds that this is not a good situation to be in she tries to find ways to earn a bit more money to speed up her chances of uh again getting this chance to sort of get away from this situation and she runs into obstacle after obstacle. It certainly is a film that was uh, well aware of the four years of Donald Trump as president, and I'm sure was written and filmed while he was still president, and how uh, dangerous uh, it is to uh, be an illegal immigrant traveling through uh, the United States and how you can be taken advantage of. But it's also connected to this <clears throat> rather... Uh, elaborate kind of ghost story and supernatural phenomenon which is um, connected to uh, the history of this house and the history of this landlord as well it is it is violent it is uh, entertaining uh, I have seen movies like this before and you're kind of like okay so can't she sense from the first moment that this is a really creepy place to stay well, the fact is, because of the context they set up, she has no choice. This is the cheapest rent. This is where she has to stay. And she's also not aware that she's in a horror movie, uh, but we are. So as a result of that, she has to take this place, even though uh, she's kind of creeped out by the landlord and she doesn't get the greatest feeling in this place. It just prompts her to try to work harder and find ways to gather up the money that she needs to be able to get those documents. Uh, so that she can live a more secure life. I appreciate all of the beats of this movie. It has a strong setup. Uh, the second act is is terrific, even though a few moments are fairly predictable. Uh, certainly watching her put her trust in people that she shouldn't put her trust in. Uh, and you will kind of go, like, why is she doing that? Why does she call this person? Which sets up a really kind of interesting and uh, quite violent climax to the film. So I'm a fan of No One Gets Out Alive. I'll be happy to see more movies by uh, Santiago Meghini. Uh, again, forgive my pronunciation. Uh, I think uh, he is uh, an exciting 
horror movie director of the future. And I would highly, highly recommend this little Netflix movie. Uh, Acting-wise, solid acting. I mean, there are some uh, fairly two-dimensional, straight-up, capital V villains uh, in the in the film. But everybody uh, does quite a good job for quite an independent film. So I'm giving 12 points for acting. Interesting story, familiar in some places, but I like that touch of the illegal immigrant trying to survive in the cold city of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, in the winter, and is is trapped in this situation. It's an interesting little allegory for uh, the Trump years as far as uh, how America operated. And scariness, there are legit scares in here. I mean, I, I think, you know, to be to be fair, this is the scariest of the five movies that we're we're looking at here. And and I was just really, really interested and engaged start to finish. And I just felt for this character every time she would have a setback. Uh, it, it was a sign of a very good film. And I, I gave 15 for scariness. And uh, I I would say, you know, if you have Netflix, and most people do, and you are a fan of horror, uh, no one gets out alive, uh, is worth your time. Uh, it's a short film. It's only about an, an hour and 25 minutes. So it's uh, very tight. Every scene and every, every moment has a purpose. And it's also an interesting mystery to try to figure out as well. So uh, check out No One Gets Out Alive. Mr. Ward, how would you like to make $50 million on a warm summer's evening? On a train bound for nowhere, met up with a gambler. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring out the window at the darkness. The boredom overtook us, and he began to speak. He said, son, I've made a life out of reading people's faces. Think about everything we did, all those people we saved. The way they held their eyes. Look what it does. You don't mind my saying. What if? I can see you're out of age. What if just once? We did something just for us. You ready to play? There's $200 million in the vault beneath the strip. With a 32-hour window to get it out. Find the safe. This should be a simple in and out. It's not too late to go back. think they are. They're smarter. They're faster. They're organized. The best that you can hope for is to die. Oh, Shiza. You got That's crossing the line. So before uh, Zack Snyder got himself deep into the superhero film world, he did what something that was considered impossible. He remade Dawn of the Dead. He wisely kind of was keeping some settings similar, but kind of brought his own take on it. There was no point in trying to copy George A. Romero. Again, remaking what was 
viewed as a absolute horror and zombie classic seemed impossible. And he did such a good job with Dawn of the Dead. In fact, I, I, each time I watch it, I appreciate it more and more. So here he is in 2021 and he's working for Netflix and he uh, revisits the zombie subgenre with Army of the Dead and creates a two and a half hour zombie movie. So as far as uh, the story goes, uh, with the uh, abandoned walled city of Las Vegas, overrun with zombies, which we see in a spectacular opening sequence, which Zack Snyder is very good at those title sequences. And after a disastrous government fault, a billionaire casino magnate, Bly Tanaka, realizes that he has left something in Sin City, $200 million to be more precise. For the time being, his mountains of cash are safe behind his impenetrable casino vault. However, the U.S. president plans to nuke the entire city of Las Vegas in less than 96 hours. Now Tanaka is willing to pay $50 million to the decorated former mercenary Scott Ward and his hand-picked team to retrieve the money before the bomb obliterates the city. Indeed, this is a life-changing offer Scott cannot refuse. Nevertheless, the rules have been changed, and the horde of the walking undead seems to be more organized than they might have expected. But time is running out. It's a good cast for this movie. I guess the Dawn of the Dead cast wasn't the Dawn of the Dead cast as prominent as uh, when it came out as they are now, other than perhaps Canadian Sarah Pauly, who was a very recognizable face when that came out. So maybe it's unfair to say that this cast is not necessarily an A-level cast for the movie. Uh, Dave Bautista is kind of the the lead and uh, playing Scott Ward, and he's uh, the most recognizable face. I like the cast. They took the role seriously. Uh, They played the moments in a realistic way, even though this is quite a stylized and fantastical zombie type of a film. But it was kind of a cool idea to set a zombie film in Vegas and to kind of watch Vegas in this really impressive sequence at the beginning, obliterated by a a zombie apocalypse. And it just starts off with this great scene where the military is transporting uh, this top secret cargo, uh, but they uh, get into a car accident with a newly married couple coming from Vegas. And that is the start of this zombie apocalypse, which they try to contain in Las Vegas when they realize that, you know, they have to shut the city down and they have to kind of create these walls, which then does lead to some of these quote-unquote refugee camps or imprisoned areas with some of the families of the people who became zombies and they get treated very poorly. There is a guard in this camp, um, in one of the refugee camps who takes advantage of uh, women and uh, we take great pleasure in watching him get what he deserves kind of later in the film. But again, kind of in a, a similar way, very much the allegory of the Trump years and caging kids and separating them from their families is very much part of the uh, method, message within the message of uh, kind of the social message of Army of the Dead. George A. Romero, Romero was, of course, very famous for having social commentary within his zombie films. Um, certainly comments on commercialism and the media and, and that kind of thing. And so I appreciate that Zack Snyder is doing the same thing here, even though it does at points feel a little bit, it's pushing it a little bit, I guess. It, and also just kind of the idea of having a president who's willing to uh, drop a nuclear bomb just as a quick way to solve a problem certainly is very Trumpian in its in its nature. But it's another kind of like Deep Star Six, a bit of a, 
a team of people trying to battle and solve a problem and, and survive. In this case, they all have a financial need, so they need this $50 million. And as we know in movies, it's always, always pretty uh, easy to trust a billionaire who uh, wants people to go and get his money, right? So I think there's some predictable parts of this film where I was battling it a little bit more than I would have liked. The other thing is kind of where we're getting used to a lot of these movies, and they've been for years, where we have kind of the leader of the team played by Bautista, and he's going around and gathering his team for this mission. And they're all really colorful characters, and they joke around with each other, and some are really tough, and some are goofy, and some are have no battle, whatever, but they're there for their brains or safe cracking skills in, in, in this case, in the case of this movie. And I'm a little bit sick of this, like how colorful this team is. I mean, it kind of goes back to the Oceans movies for sure, even though the Oceans movies were lighter and more comic in nature uh, than this is. I know Zack Snyder likes to put some comedy into his superhero movies or his uh, zombie movies, I guess, but I, I didn't find that as much of an issue in Dawn of the Dead, which unfortunately I'm comparing this to Dawn of the Dead. The Fast and the Furious movies were also kind of in the back of my mind. And as as far as kind of like the, you know, the getting all of these characters together and we're supposed to like them, even though they're all kind of cartoons, we're supposed to kind of, you know, be sad when some of them inevitably die in this uh, situation. Yeah, there are a few characters where it does hurt and some people that I actually thought would be, you know, surviving long longer in the film and I do like that here is a certain amount of consequence connected to this but what I'm kind of talking around is I think there you know as much as the movie moves you know I I didn't clock it as being two and a half hours it's interesting at the beginning I just think there's sections in there that could have been tightened up and instead of playing types uh, I would like to sort of get to know the characters uh, in a more organic fashion like I did with Deep Star 6 which I again I, I think is even though the points totals are going to be fairly similar I think is the superior film in, in in this regard but as far as a zombie film yeah the effects are there i mean it's a lot of cgi effects as you would expect now not a, a ton of practical effects but that's what we've gone used to but they're impressive looking zombies they are dangerous and there's a a bit of a another bit of a morality piece of whether like you know this has become their land now and do these humans have a right to come in and kill them for basically just for money and also of course there's always some sort of a person who's brought along to help the billionaire who has his own agenda which screws up everything for everyone and i don't know i i i, I feel like i'm talking around this i do like the movie but i very much was hoping to love army of the dead i, I guess that's where where i stand on it a bit of a muddled review here but i think a lot of people will enjoy this and will think it's the greatest thing and one of the best movies of the year and then there may be some other people that are kind of have their hopes up a little bit more i'm neither of those people i'm, I'm not i don't dislike it but i don't love it it's kind of a three star type of a review for me if that makes sense mild thumbs up type of thing because it is entertaining and i think you could do a lot worse in this uh as far as a zombie movie and in this 31 days of horror yet i think you know in in a way like it i i feel like there's an innovative idea here that wasn't fully explored i think more time was spent on creating an amazing set of action sequences and the title sequence and trying to have some kind of melodramatic emotional payoffs in the third act and that other than that opening sequence those those tricks get a little bit tired after a while and i i, I honestly wish i cared about the characters more than i did I do want to do a little bit of a shout out to uh, Nora Arz Arzender. She plays Lily and uh, she's she's very good. She's she's a tough character and you feel like she's going to be able to, uh, that nothing's going to be able to get her. And she, she's one where I, I, I found myself caring about that character, a strong supporting character. And Tig Notaro, a stand-up comedian, is playing their, their pilot named uh, Marianne Peters. <sighs> I, 
nice to see Tig getting work, but I just think, you know, there's she, she's there for the zingers and the one-liners, but is a bit of a distracting presence, actually. And I guess that was kind of the second most recognizable face in this cast. And again, as far as uh, Dave Bautista, I mean, he's, he certainly is an action movie star, but I don't think he's a leading man. I don't think he can carry a film of this magnitude. I think he's probably better at being one of those supporting types of characters. I, I Hopefully that's not too mean. But again, just he he served the role fine, but I wasn't uh, wowed by him either. So, but probably because of uh, one of the films of the five that were. Um, looking at here, perhaps generously, I am still giving 12 for the acting and giving 11 for the story. I like what they were trying to do, maybe a little bit more than what they, in fact, accomplished. Scariness, not really that scary. I don't know if, if people find zombies scary, then they might find a few moments in there frightening, but I guess the, like, the effects and all that just kind of leaves me a bit removed from finding anything um, all that scary, but it's well executed, so it was 10 for for. Check out Army of the Dead. Please tell me if you think I'm completely wrong. I'm I'm open to that kind of a discussion here, but unfortunately army of the dead i feel like had the potential to be the best of the five movies and really it's just kind of in the mix here and not necessarily uh, the the top film there but i as i understand there's a sequel coming out next year and i'm certainly going to watch that sequel and keep seeing if the franchise improves Okay, thank you again for joining me for another solo show, Volume 2 of the 31 Days of Horror. Uh, Interesting kind of mix of films here. I think based on my review, it might be a bit too obvious, unfortunately, which movie is going to be... uh, would be shed from my movie shelf. Once again, uh, as far as these movies go, I only own a physical copy of one of them. As a result of that, you uh, can certainly expect that there's going to be a future episode where I take a look at uh, Deep Star 6 again, hopefully with a guest. All right, so going over my totals again, White Zombie, uh, five for acting, five for story, and two for scariness. Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon got eight for acting, 11 for story, 13 for scariness. Deep Star 6 got 13 for acting, which was the highest I gave for acting. 11 for story, 10 for scariness. No One Gets Out Alive, a Netflix horror movie, uh, received 12 for acting, 12 for story, which was the highest I gave, and 15 for scariness, which was also the highest I gave in that category. And finally, Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. Again, 12 for acting, 11 for story, and 10 for scariness. Perhaps a little bit inflated. I think I was a little bit negative with it uh, in my review. I think it it looks good. It moves at a good pace, which is amazing. Uh, Sometimes I, again, I watched White Zombie, which is much, much shorter film, 70 some minutes long, and it felt like paint drawing compared to Army of the Dead. If I watched the two together, I I would swear Army of the Dead was a a shorter movie than White Zombies. So going back to an old phrase that I believe Roger Ebert used, a good movie can never be too long and a bad movie can never be too short. So where that leaves us with the grand totals, the movie, uh, not really a surprise based on a review that got the most points, No One Gets Out Alive with 39 points, followed by Deep Star 6 with 34 points. Army of the Dead actually got 33, one more than Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. I like the acting in Army of the Dead just a bit more. But definitely White Zombie, uh, again, it's considered a horror classic from 1932. It, it just was out of its league, unfortunately, with this group of five there, and it only got 12 points. It, it didn't work for me, unfortunately, even though uh, I think Bella Lugosi gets a bad rap, and he I w- wanted to celebrate him in some way on the Horror Icon Day. So it's nothing against Bella Lugosi, but I would remove White Zombie from this group of five. Thank you again for listening to Volume 2, and... 
I just want to do before I go uh, shout out as always to uh, some friendly podcasts. Film Feast hosted by Matt Bledsoe, A Lifetime of Hallmark co-hosted by Kurt Fitzpatrick and as always Rank and Review hosted by Larry Parsons. Please check out those podcasts and continue to support the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Recommend it to the horror fans in your life and I look forward to joining you again for volume three of the 2021 31 Days of Horror. Until next time, please be safe. Continue to be kind to one another. Thank you so much.